This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest is Kevin Moore, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Mathematics and Science Education at the University of Georgia. Kevin, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Sam. This is great. We're going to be talking about Kevin's article in the journal Educational Studies in Mathematics, Volume 83, entitled Making Sense of Measuring Arcs, a Teaching Experiment in Angle Measure. And Kevin, I was wondering if you could give us a quick overview of the article as a preview of what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, so it's kind of a got a two-part uh, purpose to the article in terms of what I was attempting to accomplish. The particular was really addressing students' quantification of angle measure, which I'm sure I'll, I'll say a bit more about uh, down the road. But really trying to go about thinking about how students might make sense of angle measure in ways that helps them connect to different units we use, like degrees and radian uh, angle measure units. And then more of kind of a general overview of what I was looking for in the article was kind of looking at quantitative reasoning in terms of... Uh, learning a particular idea like angle measure. So looking for some kind of general themes of quantitative reasoning and how those might play a role relative to angle measure. Sure, and this uh, builds on your past work related to quantification and students' quantitative reasoning of sorts. Um, And I know that started or at least uh, contained your dissertation work. I was wondering if you could tell us about your grad school experience and what you did your dissertation study on. Yeah, so my graduate school experience started in 2006, uh, Arizona State University, obviously, where I went out to work with Marilyn Carlson, who then became my advisor, and I was under her for the four years that I was out there. So basically, my grad school experience involved uh, working on her MSP grant from the National Science Foundation, which led us to basically, uh, to developing a pre-calculus curriculum. But that basically ended up being where my a lot of my research and work was situated, was within that curriculum development project. So for the four years I was there, working with high school teachers and trying to get them to use the curriculum and redesigning the curriculum. Uh, so part of my dissertation study then became moving into looking at uh, one of the modules was obviously trigonometry being a pre-calculus course. So looking at how students learn trigonometry uh, was the emphasis of my dissertation from taking a quantitative reasoning and co-variational reasoning perspective on their learning and their mathematical thinking. And based on what we had seen in the research literature that was already out there in the area, students really had gradual understandings of trig functions for all of those that have uh, taught trig functions. Obviously, we see that every day in the classroom. But a lot of the research kind of pointed to angle measure being an underlying root of that problem. Um, some people called it out directly. Some just you, you could kind of read between the lines that there was something going on there. So uh, we took very seriously with my dissertation study that hey, if we're going to address trig functions, we also need to look at how students think about angle measure. And we need to start there as a foundational piece to move into trigonometry. So my dissertation kind of spanned that gamut of starting with students in terms of angle measure and then moving into trig functions and kind of seeing how their angle measure meanings played out when attempting to learn trig functions. So that kind of was the the range of my dissertation study that I'm working particularly with three pre-calculus students at the undergraduate level. So having identified those key areas of interest, um, as you moved on from grad school, was there something in your, uh, you know, work as a college professor that led you to really want to pursue those ideas and continue working in that area? Yeah, definitely. So I I was very fortunate uh, 
in terms of position I got here that I was kind of given the first content course in our secondary preparation program, which is kind of a functions and modeling course. So they gave me an opportunity to kind of extend my dissertation work to uh, pre-service teachers. You know, they're typically around junior year and credits uh, when we get them um, and we get done for a couple semesters, so it made a very natural fit for me to extend those ideas and see, okay, well, we've looked at pre-calculus students a bit. Let's look at pre-service teachers a little bit and see, you know, kind of similarities and differences between the populations. And based on the important findings from my dissertation, how can we help foster those ideas with pre-service teachers since they're going to be expected to teach those topics when they go out into the classroom? So that made a really, really nice fit in terms of coming here where I've been able to kind of continue to establish that research agenda and grow it uh, within a different population. And so for this article in Educational Studies in Mathematics, uh, you conducted a teaching experiment. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the setting of that teaching experiment and the students uh, sort of give us a sense of what that context looked like. Yeah, so as I mentioned, this was kind of wrapped up into Maryland's MSP grant. And so it was within, the, uh, within one of the research-based pre-calculus courses that we were, uh, we were teaching at the time at the university. And so we decided, okay, trigonometry was basically one of the last modules in the course. is about five weeks' worth of activities. So once these students reached that point, we did everything on a volunteer basis, had the students volunteer for the study and so forth was kind of how we got the, the selection of the participants. Mm-hmm. But then we basically I pulled them out of the course with five weeks left, and then they just worked predominantly or entirely with me for the rest of the semester. So I ended up with three students participating in the dissertation study. This article focused on two in particular. The reason for that was I focused in this article is because they had a lot of similarities between the two where the other student was very, very different. So that student's getting uh, his or her own article kind of based on the entire progress. And so it was within that context, within that setting, which with the students were, which I drew the students. The two students in particular in this uh, study were pretty interesting in that they weren't your traditional students. They were uh, kind of coming back to college in a way, looking for career changes or... uh, you know, so forth. Mm-hmm. But in a, at, particularly at a college like Arizona State University, that's not abnormal to have pre-cal- uh, students in pre-calculus be in that sort of setting. They're not always uh, your introductory students who are just starting their first year of college. You get kind of a wide range of students coming back into class uh, to pursue a different degree mm-hmm. or come to college for the first time at a, after working out in the field for a while. Mm-hmm. And so then that becomes pretty important to conduct those pre-interviews like you did to get a sense of where they're coming from and their mathematical knowledge and their understanding of angle measurements and so forth. I was wondering if you could tell us, um, too, about the, the range of data that you collected that you based this analysis on. Yeah, so as you mentioned, it was really important to get some pre-interview data because uh, we expected with them having a kind of a wide range of experiences and the different students that we'd see very, very different things across the board, but it was I conducted a lot of pre-interview data with other students that weren't part of my dissertation study, and we saw pretty good similarities. So yeah, the, the first stage of the, the dissertation and that's presented in this article is kind of the pre-interview to get a feel for the angle measure understandings. And predominantly across the board with pretty much all the students we worked with, the main kind of emerging idea was what the, the way I phrased it was, angle measures were basically labels of objects. And by that I mean they didn't represent a measurement process beyond like laying down a protractor. So, like, the idea of constructing a protractor to them at this time was completely not within their ballpark uh, of something something they had thought about before, uh, which showed up when I presented them, like, the, the task with asking them to measure an angle of supplies that would let them measure arcs and so forth, that to them that had nothing to do with angle measure. Uh, 
they tried some things but really didn't have a handle on and kind of came to, well, if I had a protractor, I could do this. But the idea of constructing a protractor just wasn't, wasn't in their ballpark. So based on that, then I moved into kind of the more traditional teaching experiment phase, uh, which is more of an interventionist phase where I had designed some activities kind of on the fly, working with them, trying to get at some important ways of thinking, you know, and based on uh, whatever they were doing in those sessions, designing new activities, continuing to push their thinking and kind of test the models I was coming up uh, relative to their thinking. And so then that kind of phase of the study spanned, well, for the dissertation, it was about uh, six to eight total sessions, depending on the student, where I also had some breakout interviews one-on-one -on -one with these students, where I mentioned that. Uh, with the reason being there, when they're working in groups, you get some good insights into how they're thinking, but it's also nice to be working on one-on-one -on -one with the students. So you can really, really, really dive into uh, what they're thinking and what they're doing and try to come up with as clear models as you can uh, about how they're thinking. Yeah, looking at small group data, there's just so many times where, as a researcher, you wish you could ask a probing question or ask a follow-up question just to get a little clearer sense of what they're thinking or how they're, how they're understanding the topic. Yeah, definitely. And like I mentioned, the, the one student that's not in this uh, setting, one of the issues that came up there was uh, he or she was kind of an observer. Uh, is the way I'd phrase it, right? Uh, he or she was just happy watching the other students do things and looked for me for, you know, saying what's right and wrong and telling them what to do. Sure. Uh, yeah. So without those, you know, individual interviews with that student, I would have really had no data other than him or her just kind of sitting there. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Kevin Moore from the University of Georgia about his article, Making Sense of Measuring Arcs, a teaching experiment and angle measure. Uh, it's appearing in Educational Studies and Mathematics. So we have this set up, and, uh, and we have the mathematical topic that you're digging into, um, you know, the pre-calculus students and their understandings of angle measure. Um, so now I'm wondering if you could talk us through how things went when you did actually enact your teaching experiment and you did start to actually make some moves to try to understand and also move forward their mathematical understandings. Yeah, so kind of based on the, uh, the pre-interview there, right, I framed it as, okay, they thought about angle measures and labels and didn't really have this internalized measurement process by which they could go about measuring an angle if they didn't have a protractor available. My first goal was to kind of try to find a situation where they'd have to wrestle with what it means to measure an angle. You know, what does a unit of angle measure mean? And so to do that, I designed the uh, protractor activity, which is in the article itself. I strategically designed that in a couple ways. One was the numbers I used for it. So the, there was two parts to it. The first part I designed so they could basically fold the protractor to create what they wanted to do. In sort of kind of an area image, you know, you're using the whole object, you're folding, you're maybe think about angle bisection. Uh, but then the second part of that problem set it up so folding wouldn't work. So my thoughts were that they would use a folding method on the first part. And then the second part would kind of problematize that imagery and get them thinking about something else. So that's kind of how I framed it there, which worked uh, better than I thought it would, really. That they folded, and when they got to that, they weren't sure quite what to do. So then I was kind of able to move, that, move in and get them thinking about the different tools they had. I had them using wax strings so they could measure arcs uh, and actually engage in that process of thinking about measuring along an arc and laying it out and measuring it linearly. So that was kind of the first instinctive move I made with them is to get them engaged in that sort of activity. And it kind of played out really nicely because they also had different size protractors. So that led them to notice that, well, when we came to, uh, if we look at like the fractional amount of arc length is of the entire circle circumference, if you have a particular angle, the size of the circle doesn't matter. Right, the fact that that's so kind of, Yeah, exactly. 
really an idea of kind of equivalence, right, is really the basis for that. So that was going through that process, which really occurred over most of a, a full teaching session because it wasn't a real quick process. Once they got that idea down just on that activity, then the activities from then on kind of just built on that actually quicker than I thought they would. Uh, even moving into radian uh, measure that they were pretty quick to pick up on on that being equivalent to degree measure in terms of its structure or in terms of these quips and gips that we kind of fictitiously made up for the uh, task itself. Mm -hmm. So there's a conscious move on your part to expand their horizons beyond just degrees because um, it sounded like they came in really with thinking about degrees as this object um, and now you had some fictional units and then you had radians which is a unit for angle measure that usually students aren't as comfortable with. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, so if you look at like, well, the Common Core now, but it was just like this before the Common Core. I mean, degree measures introduced around fourth grade, some places even as early as second grade. Uh, and then radian measure typically doesn't get introduced to high school, right? So they built up these meanings for degree measure over a lot of years of experience. So I really wanted to kind of avoid degree measure at the beginning uh, and just get them thinking about some other units that they want to bring, all these preconceived and intuitive ideas of like where degree measures are, right? They all know where 45 degrees is or, you know, what, what a 45 degree angle looks like. So I wanted to stay away from things like that. And then it was amazing that by, with these two students I presented here, after the radian measure activity, which, and this contradicts all of the uh, previous research out there on angle measure, they preferred radian angle measures. Uh, they liked it because the unit was explicit. It was, you know, the radius of the circle. It was right there and they could see it in a way which they, they liked uh, a little bit more than degree measure. And they also then also found the uh, radian angle measure formula very, very useful because they just imagined things measuring uh, arcs relative to a circle's radius. So dividing the arc length by the radius made kind of natural sense to them. And they became very fluid with kind of using those formalisms to represent these quantitative relationships that they had developed. Mm -hmm. It's suggestive of the fact that maybe the preference for degrees is just from familiarity or just from comfort with them but you know this this suggests that maybe there could be a preference for for uh, radian measure if the students are understanding it more from a quantitative uh, quantification perspective yeah i would definitely definitely agree with that i mean i always try to say like really there shouldn't be a preference right it's one you know they're they're measuring the same thing. It's like meters and feet. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when you get down to the structure of the units, the fact that the, the radian is tied, you know, is equivalent to the radius uh, is definitely an added benefit of radian measure. And of course, for trigonometry purposes, having radian measure be the predominant focus uh, for the unit of angle measure does have its benefits because it gives you all the derivative rules uh, and everything beyond is based on using trig functions with uh, radian measure inputs versus degree measure inputs. Mm -hmm. And just for the record, I will say I, I prefer meters to feet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do have the uh, structure in the base 10 system that to work on that definitely give us some benefits. Although I saw a good argument on video the other day about if we had used a base 12 system, uh, then of course it would be the opposite way. If we, didn't, if we counted in base 12 rather uh -huh. than base 10, then the metric system wouldn't make any sense. Right. That was humorous. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit, so... You had the pre-interviews at the beginning. You did these activities, um, having them build a protractor using various uh, measures for measuring angles, ending up with some activities on circles and radian measure. Um, and then you conducted post-interviews. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you drew from the post-interviews as some salient themes. 
Yeah, so in the post-interviews, my goal kind of there was, obviously because this was in the context of a larger study involving trade functions, I wanted to conduct some interviews kind of after they had gone through the activities a little bit removed in terms of time, so not to, not to claim permanence or any sort of ideas there, but just to see, you know, a couple weeks down the road, what are the ideas that are still floating around uh, relative to the instruction they went through? Because obviously in instruction, they're really trying to, you know, organize their thinking and nothing's real concrete when they leave an instructional session. So I just wanted to give them some activities that involve the same sorts of ideas just to see kind of what thinking uh, they brought to the table when they're engaging those activities and was it more like the pre-interviews or was there some semblance of what we had done in the instructional uh, and the teaching sessions. And one of the main emphasis I wanted to see, and this kind of comes back to the point of looking for more generally uh, my goal of exploring quantitative reasoning, is to see if they use formalisms, like I do, you know, different formulas uh, when they were solving problems with a quantitative basis. So I tried to implement some activities where they have to do a decent amount of calculations and maybe some formula development to uh, see if they just kind of recall and memorize formulas or if they brought forward formulas and calculations with a quantitative explanation, mm. um, which both of those students ended up doing very, very nicely. I mean, every number, every calculation they used had some sort of underlying meaning to it, that they weren't just bringing it forth because, oh, you divide because you divide, but, oh, I divide by the radius because I want to know how many radii, you know, lie along the arc. So trying to get into those sorts of uh, aspects of their thinking was my goal for those post-interviews. Mm-hmm. So some, some really interesting work that you did with these uh, students, and it sounds like some very compelling things that you saw at the end of the day. Um, I'm wondering if you could just help synthesize for, for me and the listeners what you see as a key takeaway point from this body of work. Yeah, so I guess this resonates with uh, Pat Thompson, who obviously I draw a lot on in terms of quantitative reasoning in 2011, wrote a piece about quantification. And essentially the uh, main point is that quantification is a serious, serious deal. So like in the context of angle measure, if we don't take quantification of angle measure seriously, then we can't really expect them to understand the unit itself or angle measure in any sort of meaningful way that's going to give them uh, a solid basis for moving forward in their mathematical development. And, and I mean, it speaks to the literature out there. I mean, how, if we think about how much literature is out there on fractions or measuring length and how complex just measuring length is, mm-hmm. now we're going to angle measure, which has ideas of equivalence classes underlying it and invariance. Right. So if that's not taken seriously with students, then, you know, we're kind of, we're not doing them justice, I would say. So if we just give them a protractor and say, hey, assign numbers to these objects, well, they're not really gathering an understanding of the unit itself by which they're mm-hmm. measuring, uh, measuring you know, the openness of an angle. Mm-hmm. So my main takeaway point from the article is that, well, we need to take it seriously because if we do take quantification seriously, the things that we're often trying to get to, like you know, relationships between angles, different formulas for like radian measure, or conversion formulas, those ideas just fall out from their thinking if we do take quantification seriously. You know, if students come to understand angle measure as well, regardless of unit, then the angle measure represents a fractional amount of a circle circumference. Well, now they're set up to give a meaningful conversion formula based on that understanding. But it takes time to develop those ways of thinking, and it's important to do that. So they kind of have a nice basis for angle measures. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think... Your uh, work with these students in the article uh, really shows an important difference in approach. Like, as you said, you know, handing a protractor and then 
teaching students how to use the protractor to assign measurements uh, mm-hmm. is a very different thing than really understanding what what that actually means and, and how to actually conceive of angle measure. I, f- I feel like there is a tendency to just equate the use of protractor with the use of a ruler. You know, lay this ruler down, find the length measurement, lay this protractor down, find the angle measurement. But your article reveals that there's really a lot more nuance and there are a lot of distinctions between those two. Right, and it gets to some really interesting mathematics. Like the quantification of angle measure really is very, very mathematical. And I would argue makes it gives them a good foundation for uh, ideas of abstract algebra and analysis because, yeah, I don't talk about equivalence classes with them or invariance in those type of words, but in a way... Once they get this idea that it doesn't matter what circle I use, well, underline that our ideas of equivalence class and invariance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if students have those understandings, well, when going to teach those ideas at a more advanced class, well, there's there's particular situations they can draw on to get to those kind of abstract ideas. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it sounds like you're clearly um, passionate about this work, and uh, you've made the case that it's uh, quite important for us to consider and for the students so what are the next steps that you're thinking about taking on this uh, line of research? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier about taking this to pre-service teachers. So I've started to do that, and I've started to try grow, to grow it a little bit, and also looking into, like, polar coordinates, which obviously have a huge basis for angle measure and trig, uh, you know, have huge connections there. So I've started to grow the work into that area uh, a good bit and trying to look, okay, how do students' angle measure meanings influence their work in, polar coordinate, in the polar coordinate system? as well as how do their trigonometric function understandings influence their work in the polar coordinate system. So that's one way which I've started to grow, to grow this research and kind of extend it. And then beyond that, moving into just more generally looking at students' quantitative reasoning in terms of ideas like function is another area I've been growing this into. My guest is Kevin Moore from the University of Georgia. Uh, And before I let him go, I have just one more question that I ask all my guests. Uh, This question is actually from my colleague Aaron Brackenecki from Michigan State University. But Kevin, if you were not in mathematics education as your profession, uh, what would you be doing? That's a good question. Uh, Let's see, probably something with golf. Golf is my, I guess golf would be my main passion. I've played it for most of my life, played through college. Oh, wow. Always loved it. Uh, I do love teaching as well, so maybe teaching golf or coaching golf. Mm Mm-hmm. Might be what I do. I also, I still, I have a couple of buddies from when I played out there uh, trying to make it, you know, on the tour, on the various professional tours. And I caddy for them when they're down my way every once in a while. Oh, wow. Kind of escape from work and spend four days with them or so. Uh-huh. So maybe doing that as well. Maybe caddying for one of them a little bit more. Yeah, so Georgia was a pretty good place to end up uh, for somebody who is passionate about golf. Yeah, definitely a nice little golf hotbed down here. We've got a good good university course, and of course, Augusta's right down the road. I've got the uh, fortunate experience of being there the last two years to see a little bit of the tournament, and that was uh, that was quite a special experience. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious about uh, the challenges of teaching uh, golf and how those compare to the challenges of teaching mathematics. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I learned a lot about, uh, I would say, teaching golf, because a lot of people ask me when I'm playing with them to give them some advice, and... You know, just like when I was teaching mathematics in my undergraduate college, I was very uh, procedural, very lecture-based. And I would say that's probably, and I was doing that with them golf-wise, too. I think that was the wrong approach. I wasn't coming from where they were at. I was starting from where I was at, which is the uh, 
the wrong thing to do. Yeah, or, you know, instead of just uh, giving them a tip about what to do, actually try to help them understand, you know, how that affects the loft or how that affects the spin or help them see the rationale for doing something in their golf game. Exactly. Yeah, get them an understanding so when they walk away from me, they'll actually be able to uh, to use it. Mm-hmm. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to speak about your work. Well, thank you, Sam. This is uh, awesome that you're doing this. And, uh, on behalf of the field, I guess, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.